Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like onions, pillows, and pantries. Oh, pantries is a bit like kitchens. I'm I'm <laughs> obsessed with pantries. I designed a pantry last year, and I am I'm so geeked out about it. However, continuing the theme of peas, we could also think about pleasure, probity, and perseverance, peacocks, pantaloons, and of course, everyone's favourite, privacy. <laughs> we love a bit of privacy. We did uh, an episode on privacy uh, a couple of years ago, uh, so you should check out our back catalogue. But we can't yatter on like this, Sam. Because I, I want to do we're peacocks. Di- <laughs> we're digressing monstrously. We're doing Friends next, I think. <laughs> somebody on Twitter, somebody on Twitter said that said they're expecting Friends this week. But I'm I'm sorry, everyone, because it's it's not Friends. It's something else. However, this is to monstrously digress as always, because we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam? Who knew? Well, you would know had you listened to the two episodes last week that the history of maggots, yes, maggots, is all about the American Civil War, ancient and modern medicine, dangerous Sardinian delicacies, the circle of life, forgetful mothers-in-law, and Amazonian plane crashes. And I must admit, the image of that... 14-year-old girl plummeting two miles strapped to a plane seat, landing in the Amazon, suffering awful, awful injuries, and then finding some gasoline and washing out her maggot-infested wound with it to cleanse it is absolutely seared on my my mind. Um, Or that the history of hair grooming, hair grooming, would you believe, is in fact all about... Vikings and Social Boundaries, which is a brilliant chapter in our our book that we wrote a couple of years ago on the unexpected history of the Vikings, which I think, Sam, you'll agree, is about the right size to go into a Christmas stocking. <laughs> Don't you think? Uh, since, I, since there are probably about 30 days left before Christmas. Yes, I think that's a very good idea. Yes. Um, you're all probably wondering who's doing the talking. The man's not sitting opposite me. We're, not, we're actually still apart from town. Um, let me just say that if history was a pair of kings say, Henry VIII and Francis I. Their location is irrelevant, but you can imagine them wrestling each other in a field in France in 1520 and Henry losing. (laughs) My point is history. If history's a pair of kings, this man, this man here, he would be a royal flush, bringing his superior regal authority of modern historical research to bear, to win that card trick, allowing him to tell their story, cutting through the mouthpieces of those Tudor monarchs. He is (laughs) Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor, the card-winning James Daybell. 
Oh, Sam, you're that's so that's so lovely. I I, I like being uh, described as a royal flush rather than a, a Tudor monarch because I'm not. Although I study the Tudors, I'm a professor of Tudor history. Um, but nonetheless, I'm not sure which Tudor monarch I would I would rather be. Certainly not Henry VIII, and um, and Edward VI is just too young. Uh, and I feel you know in my almost anecdotage that um, I'm I'm too young, I'm too old to be uh, Edward Edward VI, uh, and. Henry the Seventh just feels a little bit uh, a little bit boring, despite <laughs> yeah. despite Steve Gunn's uh, resurrection of him into this sort of exciting, dynamic uh, Renaissance monarch. Uh, I, so I'll take a royal flush. Um, anyway, thank you for that because I'm now going to introduce you because the man not sitting opposite me because we're in social distancing in these grimmest days of lockdown, although. Um, the clouds seem to have a, a silver lining. The sun is peeking through because there are at least three vaccines that seem to be doing wonderful things. Um, so we may be back to normality before we know it. Well, let's just say, and I'll get round to introducing you, that if he were a US presidential candidate who just lost the public vote by more than five million votes and had been resoundingly trounced in the Electoral College voting system, a system so complex that I barely understand it. Well, let's just say he would be on the honourable Al Gore side of history. So noble and gallant is he, as far from a dangerous narcissist as could possibly be. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Thank you very much. I like being Al Gore. Alan? Alistair? Al? What's Al short for? I don't know. Mm. He's just Al. He's just, he's just Al. Al call me, call he's, me Al. He's just a man of the people. Yeah. Um, and, that's, well, and that's how he rolls. Today, you might have worked this out. It's been a little round, roundabout way of doing it. We're doing the history of losers. James and I have been inspired uh, by the American election and Trump's rantings to do the history of losers. So um, here we go, James. How are we going to do this? <laughs> well, I've, I've been inspired in particular by Jim Carrey's brilliant movie, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Uh, which was which he reprised uh, a couple of weeks ago in Saturday Night Live uh, in the election special, uh, where he went. You know, well, you know, there are some of sometimes when you know people are you know uh, are defeated and and you know and other times when people are just losers, <laughs> uh, which was brilliant. Which of course brings us to uh, what's happening in the U.S. at the moment uh, when. Um, Biden, Joe Biden, uh, has without a doubt won the uh, popular vote and the Electoral College and Donald Trump has lost, uh, but yet is carrying on in the most extraordinary manner. Uh, and when one of the world's great democracies is being undermined before our, our very eyes, uh, it's it's quite extraordinary and, and uniquely damaging. Uh, and what it seems to be playing played out for purely egotistical ways in a way that exposes the very partisan and corrupt nature of high politics um, in the United States. Uh, um, a little bit of politics here, as Ben Elton would say on, on Saturday Night Live when he was digging into Mrs Thatcher. But it seems to me that something of the honour of politicians that would normally accept defeat, candidates conceding when they see they've lost, is not on show here. Uh, but then I think it's something that's been characteristic of US politics for the last four years or so, where we've seen the kinds of lying, um, you know, question, questionable morality of public figures, 
you know, that would basically have destroyed other political figures. But Donald Trump seems to have been Teflon coated uh, during these periods. And I think that's something that history will judge. You know, he's been riven with sexual and political scandal and bullying charges and corruption, interfering in legal and federal jurisdictions and international diplomacy in a manner that is or wholly without compare in the United States. The lying, the cheating, the profiteering, the arrogance, the narcissism um, that won't allow him for some reason to see that he's been outmaneuvered, outvoted, and frankly, that he's lost. And I think history will, without a doubt, be exceptionally unkind. Uh, and he will go down in history as, you know, a, a, a truly problematic uh, president, uh, so I think I think I think actually historians are probably chomping at the bit, uh, wanting to get their teeth into him. I mean, what an extraordinary figure to study. Um, so uh, a little bit of politics. Uh, <laughs> I get off my soapbox now. No, uh, normally I mean, we don't delve into that, but um, it's you important, know, I, though, isn't it? Because I mean, it not, is very important. Yeah. Not only is he a loser, uh, but the whole point about it, there's a bit of Schadenfreude here, is that he's been calling everyone else losers. Yes. Um, John John McCain, who yep. he, he called a loser for for being shot down in the Vietnam War, and others, aren't they? Yeah, he, he said he said he said he's not a war hero. He said this in in 2015 uh, when uh, well he well, well he was running for nomination for president. He said I like people who weren't captured, and this is a theme that runs through. Uh, as run through his his presidency and presidential campaign um, when he went in. 2018 he didn't go to that american cemetery uh near paris the enman american cemetery um there was some sort of dispute about whether you know it was raining and a helicopter couldn't fly in or the secret service couldn't get him there but then he's recorded of having said why should i go to that cemetery it's filled with losers mm. and this is a cemetery with 1800 american marines buried there who'd lost their lives in Bewley Wood. Uh, he describes them as suckers. Um, he also described former President George H.W. Bush as a loser for being shot down uh, during World War II. Uh, he was a Navy pilot and was shot down by the Japanese. Um, some of the other men who were captured at the time were caught, tortured and executed, but he actually evades capture. Uh, but nonetheless, Trump you know, calls, calls him a loser. And I think what's really interesting here is two things. One, is, and I've been doing a lot of reading around at the moment about people commentating on, on, on you know, the, the sort of psychological, psychological portraits of him uh, and trying to get, get to grips with these sort of statements. And some of it lies in his, his own sense of self, his, his egotism and being a very sort of self-centred man, that everything revolves around his own personal interests. But also there's a lack of empathy or understanding of why people would do things for others. So apparently he, he went to Arlington Cemetery uh, and he just couldn't, he, he just had problems with understanding why people would have sacrificed their lives for the common good. That's something that just, you know, is just so alien to him. But also this idea of loser, I think is, is also, it's also something that is riven through 
American culture. And I think this is something I, I want to talk about. That, you know, part and parcel of what it is to be successful in America is tied up with with capitalism, with success, with the American dream. And it's this idea of rugged individualism where you have these these hardy, tough, entrepreneurial individuals who come from nothing and then through hard work um, and plucky sort of spirit, they can build themselves up and be you know, very successful and very wealthy. So somebody can come from nowhere and be president of the United States, for example. Um, but also the, the flip side of that is that when you define success in that way, how do you deal with those people who don't live up to those ideals, who don't live up to that American dream, who aren't rugged individuals? And and it's in that sort of area that you start being able to define what loser is, what, you know, what... Um, you know, what it is to be a loser, what it is to be somebody who's downtrodden and not a success within society. So that's a, that's a sort of little sort of entree into some of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about later on. But also it's a way of sort of framing what we're talking about here. Yeah. Uh, but it's all it's all about Jim Carrey, really. <laughs> but it really is, it's real death of a salesman stuff, isn't it? With the um, yes, focusing absolutely. on who actually is a loser, regardless of what Trump might call people losers. I've read something about him. You know, it, loser is a word he uses to describe the press alongside unhinged and individual reporters as well, alongside unhinged, distorted, unethical, unpatriotic, failing, corrupt, dishonest, dumb, crazy, low rated, nasty, obnoxious, lightweight and psycho. Those are descriptions for the press or individual reporters but he also he calls them losers as well but he also calls uh, female journalists losers alongside stupid bimbo unattractive low iq and third rate so he's i mean he's using loser in a slightly different term but um it is linked with this idea of the downtrodden because he's being a unpleasant active bully here is what is, is what's going on um, but and that's the kind of thing that made me think about who really are the losers um, in society who have been quashed, who, whose stories have been forgotten. So I wanted to start by you know talking almost about the opposite of that by identifying a, a, a period I was looking at Victorian Britain, um, those who had lost in society, but then those who rather than bullying had had picked them up and and cared for them, raised them up out of the past. Absolutely, and that that sort of the negative language and negative imagery he's losing there has a real history itself. You know, it can be traced back at least to the Renaissance period and, and, and to, to sort of the ancient world as a sort of rhetorical tradition that when you're attacking an opponent's argument, you don't necessarily go for their ideas. You actually try and attack them, attack their personality, because as soon as you discredit them, then their whole argument falls away i mean it's not something that I, I i like but it's something that is actually part and parcel of populist politics it's something something that he's actually very good at and one of the things that historians will judge and will get to grips with is why is he so popular because he is so popular he himself although he's lost the popular vote he has be he has got more votes than any other republican candidate and so there is something about his populist message that really gets across. And, you know, and he is able to diffuse, um, you know, some pretty, you know, savage missiles sort of fired in his direction, you know, through through Twitter. But anyway, you were going to talk about 
Yeah, um, I, something else entirely. Well, no, it's linked, isn't it? It's caring and um, and in Victorian society where you've got yes. someone in power bullying people and kind of crushing them, denying them a voice. Um, and actually, that has its it's a very valid long history where where rather than being a poor poor reporter sitting on the White House lawn being called a loser. You've got people who are actually losing from society because they were being marginalised. They were not part of it. So talking about this in terms of Victorian society, I think it's a really good way in, especially today if you think about our modern world as a caring society. I mean, Trunk's an anachronism. And the majority of people are very, are very caring about what's going on. And it's actually the part of any government's job to make sure that all of its citizens are cared for and protected by the law. Um, and this was a major problem in the 1700s. It, it, it's not, uh, it hasn't just happened nowadays. There's a long history to it. So the, the real problem is that in Britain in the 1700s, the majority of the population's poor. They're scraping just about enough money together to buy a house. Um, there's unemployment, there's low wages, there's sickness, disability, old age. And this leaves many people destitute meaning that there's that they're too poor to survive without any help it becomes a massive social problem in the early 1800s so they pass laws to to try and improve it and they come up with a solution uh, which is awful they come up with the workhouse as a solution um the idea here is that if you're physically incapacitated then the state will help you but if you're fit and poor then you have to go into a workhouse um, and to earn your keep, essentially. And, and the, but the conditions were so awful that essentially you're being punished for being poor. I've got some workhouse rules here from 1841. Paupers must not use bad language, make a noise when told to be silent, refuse to work, play cards, insult the officials, get drunk, disturb others at prayer. Offenders will be given bread or potatoes instead of a meal. So they're basically being threatened with starvation for breaking the rules. Uh, repeat offenders will be put into solitary confinement. Now, um, there are all sorts of ways you can look at this historically. But one of the, the best ways, I think, is looking at um, what Charles Dickens had to say about it, because he was exercised, let's say. Uh, and if you think, in, particularly in terms of Oliver Twist and that little orphan child uh, having the temerity at the beginning of the book of, please, sir, can I have some more? He's simply asking for some more food. Um, it's a pretty reasonable request for a, a young, growing child. But, you know, after doing this, he... Uh, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable what, what's happened to him. He's actually, if you read through the text, he's threatened with being hanged, drawn and quartered. He's starved, caned and flogged before an audience, so in public. Uh, he's confined in solitary for days. He's kicked and cursed. He's hauled up before a magistrate. He's sent to work in an undertaker's. He's fed on animal scraps, uh, taunted and forced to sleep with coffins. Let me just read a bit of this out to you. It's absolutely um extraordinary um so this is when he's in solitary confinement and it's written um, with dickens's wonderful rye eye even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Let it not be supposed by the enemies of the system that, during the period of his solitary incarceration, Oliver was denied the benefit of exercise, the pleasure of society, or the advantages of religious consolation. As for exercise, it was nice cold weather, and he was allowed to perform his ablutions every morning under the pump in a stone yard in the presence of Mr Bumble, who prevented his catching cold and causing a tingling sensation to pervade his frame by repeated applications of the cane. As for society, he was carried every other day into the hall where the boys dined and there sociably flogged as a public warning and example. And so far from being denied the advantages of religious consolation, he was kicked into the same apartment every evening at prayer time and there permitted to listen to and console his mind with a general supplication of the boys containing a special clause therein inserted by authority of the board in which they entreated to be made good virtuous, contented and obedient and to be guarded from the sins and vices of Oliver Twist. Isn't that brilliant? So Utterly you just, brilliant, Sam. Yeah, you Love see it. The, the scale of what's going on here. But, um, you know, the, he's focusing on those who have been uh, lost, who have lost in this constant um, war with society. But there are those who, who sought to raise awareness like Dickens himself. Um, we've got Benjamin War, 1844. He finds um, he founds the NSPCC. Um, this is the period when child abuse was not a criminal offence, but because of his work, by 1904, there were nearly, no, there were nearly 200 NSPCC inspectors with the power to remove children from abusive homes. You've got William Booth. He's a preacher uh, from a poor Nottingham family. He sets up the Salvation Army, literally called an army because they're waging a war against poverty. And he was wonderful talking here about uh, losers and the lost. Uh, While women creep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison in and out, in and out, I will fight. While there is a poor lost girl upon the street, I'll fight. While there remains a poor lost soul in front of the light of God, I'll fight. I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. I love that. Um, That's by William Booth in 1890. And then Thomas Bernardo, who set up Bernardo's. You'll have seen the Bernardo's charity shops in the high street. That was he set up a school for the poor in London in 1867. And by the time of his death in 1905, Bernardo's homes had rescued over 50,000 homeless, orphaned and crippled boys and girls. So there is a very real sense that you can do the lost of society, the history of the lost and how there are those in history who stood up for those who were struggling and for the lost voices. Uh, it's, a, it's a lovely, uh, really fascinating history of, of charity. Oh, that was brilliant, Sam. I love that. Um, I I think it, it's not just in Dickens that we see these critiques of of the conditions in the workhouse. There, are, it's seeped through popular culture, and you can see it in in songs and illustrations from the period, where you're often getting the sort of the well-fed overseer, the person in charge, you know, being corrupt and pompous, um, contrasted with the ragged uh, in inmates and individuals who actually lived in the 
in the in the workhouses. But one of my favourites is a, a little song from a, a broadside, which is a song about a boy who was thought to have been pushed into the workhouse soup pot and boiled alive oh, by no. a cruel-hearted overseer. And any of you interested in this, go to the British Library website for Romantics and Victorians and have a look at Oliver Twist and the Workhouse. Uh, the British Library does brilliant work um, basically contextualising the historic documents and texts, books that they have in their care. And I just want to read you uh, this little song because I, I think it's it's wonderful. Uh, oh, I wouldn't say wonderful, but it, it's fascinating. <laughs> and it's entitled The Workhouse Boy, uh, Harkness Printer, Church Street, Preston. The cloth was laid in the workhouse hall, the great coats hung against the whitewashed wall, the paupers all were blithe and gay, keeping their Christmas holiday, when the master he cried with a roguish leer, you'll all get fat on your Christmas cheer, when one by his looks he seemed to say, I'll have more soup on this Christmas day, oh the poor workhouse boy. At length all on us to bed was sent, the boy was missing, in search we went, we sought him above, we sought him below, we sought him with faces of grief and woe, we sought him that hour, we sought him that night, we sought him in fear and we sought him in fright, when a young pauper cried, I knows we shall, get jolly well whooped for losing our pal, oh the poor workhouse boy. We sought in each corner, each crevice we knew, we sought down the yard and we sought up the flue, we sought in each saucepan, each kettle, each pot, in the water but looked, but found him not. And weeks rolled on, we were all honest told that somebody said he'd been burked and sold. When our master goes out, the parishioners' wild cries, there goes the cove that burked that poor child, oh, the poor workhouse boy. At length the soup coppers repaired did need, the coppersmith came, and there he seed, a dollop of bones lay grizzling there, in the leg of the breeches the boy did wear. To gain his fill the boy did stoop, and dreadful to tell, he was boiled in the soup, and we all of say, and say with a sneer, that he was pushed in by an overseer, oh, the poor workhouse boy." What do you think of that, Sam? I love it. I love it. I, I, the <laughs> idea of, of falling in soup is particularly creepy. It reminds me of a, of a kid's um, kid's story I, I, I used to have as a kid where some child falls in some batter or uh, he's baked in yes. batter. He's baked in a pie or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Four and 20 blackbirds or something like that or Jack Horner or something like that. Yes, I mean, yes. Um, it's also very Christmassy, uh, and I'm in, in true Christmas spirit uh, at the moment. However, I want to turn in a, in a different direction. I want to turn back to, um, to defeat uh, and losing, and I want to hold up a, a mirror to a magistrate. So it's all, about, it's, all about, it's all about mirrors for me, losers, and, and what I'm going to do is, is reflect how one should behave uh, in honourable defeat. And this is something that goes back... You know, centuries, um, there is an etiquette of defeat and there is being actually a good loser. Um, and Trump's phrase, I concede nothing, is, I think, more than anything, it's preposterous. Um, if you look over history, um, often how people behave in defeat tells us more about their character 
than anything else. And if you think throughout history, throughout literature, throughout films, it's often the underdog rather than the victor that gets the sympathy. Um, and this sense of defeat is, you know, it's it's quite revealing of an of an inner self. Uh, and you can trace it all the way back, you know, to something like Homer's The Iliad. Um, and you see there, you know, Achilles, um, you know, winning um, and Prince Hector, prince of the city that is defeated, um, you know, actually feeling quite sorry for him. But he um, he, he sort of, you know, concedes um, to prevent the entire destruction uh, of the city. Uh, so there, there's a sort of there's a model there. But also one of the interesting things that I was as I was uh, looking into this, that there is a, a tradition uh, within the United States itself of presidential concession speeches. Um, and it's a tr long tradition since 1896. Um, it's not the law to do this, but it's, you know, it's seen as good grace to give a, a congratulatory speech or or you know, call to, to somebody. Um, and I'll just give you some, some examples. Uh, Adlai Stevenson in 1952 lost to Dwight D. Eisenhower. And he said, someone asked me how I felt. And I was reminded of a story that a fellow townsman of ours used to tell, Abraham Lincoln. He said he felt like the little boy who had stubbed his toe in the dark. He said that he was too old to cry, but it hurt too much to laugh. There's something quite touching in that. Richard Nixon in 1960, uh, when he was narrowly defeated by John F. Kennedy, he said, uh, my congratulations to Senator Kennedy for his fine race in this campaign. Hubert Humphrey, who uh, was defeated by Nixon uh, eight years later, um, congratulated um, his opponent uh, and said... Um, Please know that you will have my support in unifying and leading the nation. I'm confident that if constructive leaders in both our parties join together now, we should be able to go on with the business of building a better America. We all seek in the spirit of peace and harmony. George McGovern in 1972, when Nixon was re-elected. Uh, this is you know, a time when... You know, we're in the middle of the Vietnam War and McGovern went on to say, I ask you not to despair of the political process of this country, he told his supporters, because that process has yielded the much valued improvement in these two years. Gerald Ford, uh, when he was defeated by Jimmy Carter, um, actually, he couldn't uh, uh, speak himself because he had uh, he had laryngitis apparently, and so his his wife Betty Ford, uh, she of the famed clinics, um, she uh, you know, spoke instead, and she said, um, "The president asked me to tell you that he telephoned President Elect Carter a short time ago and congratulated him on his." victory jimmy carter and i'm laboring it here jimmy carter uh you know uh gave a concession speech to ronald reagan i have been blessed as only a few people ever have to reshape the destiny of this nation walter mondale in 1984 defeated by reagan again and reagan has a second term although i would rather have won tonight we rejoice in our democracy 
We rejoice in the freedom of a wonderful people and we accept their verdict. Michael Dukakis in 1988 uh, lost to George H.W. Bush. Uh, I know I speak for you and all the American people when I say that he will be our president and we will work with him. This nation faces major challenge ahead and we must work together. And there are various others. Um, Al Gore, uh, we name dropped him at the beginning, when he lost to George W. Uh, Bush, um, he won the popular vote. It was over. Uh, there was a ruling uh, by the Supreme Court in, in Bush's favour. And Gore said, I say to President-elect Bush that what remains a partisan rancor must now be put aside and may God bless his stewardship of this country. And then, of course, Hillary Clinton, uh, who lost to Donald Trump, was really magnanimous in her concession speech, even though she was, you know, hugely disappointed and, um, you know, suffered great pain for for this loss. Um and she writes, last night, I congratulated Donald Trump and offered to work with him on behalf of our country. I hope that he will be a successful president for all Americans. This is not the outcome we wanted or we worked so hard for. And I'm sorry that we did not win this election for the values we share and the vision we hold for our country. But I feel pride and gratitude for this wonderful campaign that we built together, this vast, diverse, creative, unruly, energised campaign. You represent the best of America, and being your candidate has been one of the greatest honours of my life. I know how disappointed you feel because I feel it too, and so do tens of millions of Americans who invested their hopes and dreams in this effort. This is painful and it will be a long time, but I want you to remember this. Our campaign was never about one person or one election. It was about the country we love and about building an America that's hopeful, inclusive and big-hearted. We've seen that our nation is more deeply divided than we thought, but I still believe in America and I always will. And if you do, then we must accept this result and then look to the future. Donald Trump is going to be our president. We owe him an open mind and the chance to lead. Our constitutional democracy enshrines the peaceful transfer of power and we don't just respect that, we cherish it. It also enshrines other things, the rule of law, the principle that we are all equal in rights and dignity, freedom of worship and expression. We respect and cherish these values too and we must defend them. Now, in terms of history judging people, in all of these speeches, you know, maybe they are pro forma speeches, maybe this is just a tradition and etiquette, but in these speeches, it's not just about wordsmithing, it is also about the honour that is at the heart of politics. And as I said, history will judge somebody who is unable to bring themselves to be able to make a speech in that manner. Wow. I enjoyed that very much, James. From past to present, seamlessly tra transporting us. I thought that was very, very good indeed. Um, 
Well, I hope you're enjoying this podcast on the history of losers. Um, I think we're going to come back with a second episode and explore it a bit more. I'm going to talk about all the people who lost a fortune and lost their lives in the Wall Street crash. I also want to Ooh. talk about um, about a bit of imperialism. About I talked about care and poverty in the Victorian period. I want to talk about um, the, the real losers in in, um, in imperialist history and how and why. Uh, we've become interested and that has all changed. James, what are you going to talk about in the next episode? All sorts of things. I'm going to talk about um, about surrender uh, and surrendering well and and um, and military honour. Oh, um, that's I'm, good. Did you, Cornwallis also, was very bad at that when he surrendered nah, that's, at Yorktown. That's, <laughs> that's who I'm going to talk about. Oh, great. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm also going to talk about um, a book that I read um, by Scott A. Sandage, uh, called Born Losers, A History of Failure in America, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Ah. Uh, and if we have time for it, uh, there was another book that somebody mentioned on Twitter, uh, an American associate professor somewhere or other, um, and she recommended when she heard our podcast on statues, uh, a book by Adam H. Uh, Dombey, uh, called False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory. And one of the things there is that you've got the sort of Confederate South uh, who lost in the Civil War, um, basically reworking a version of the past and enshrining, as losers, enshrining Confederate white supremacy power in the history that they're writing. In particular, uh, she she asked us to look at this in terms of statues. Uh, so I've read it and, and really enjoyed it. Uh, so so thanks to her uh, for pointing that out. Well, well, so I'll come. have a little chat about that. Well, yes, we'll, we just we have to stop. Otherwise, you could probably guess we could just talk about this sort of stuff all day. But we're going to give a, yes. uh, call, call it a day there. Um, do please follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. Um, if you're interested in maritime and naval history, do please check out my new podcast. It's called the Mariner's Mirror Podcast. And you can follow me at James Daybell and you can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. You can also check out everything uh, that we have been doing and are going to be doing on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. In these trying times, uh, we're trying to keep this podcast going, uh, delivering you a couple of episodes a week and any support that you could give us on our Patreon uh, account would be very much appreciated to help us get the sort of uh, pay for production uh, and that kind of thing uh, and also check out our books for Christmas we are signing things and I've been sending off um, people have been um, people have been purchasing these from our website and I've been uh, we've been signing them and 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 wrapping them up uh, popping them in envelopes and getting them in the mail to you so that people won't be disappointed on Christmas Day when they don't get a Histories of the Unexpected book. I'd be thoroughly disappointed. I would feel like I had lost. Absolutely. I'd feel like Christmas Christmas <laughs> had just passed me by. Thank you all so much for listening, guys. We'll be back soon, I promise. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.